You're listening to New Life Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. We're going to go to Luke chapter 15. So if you got your Bible, uh, go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 15. Now, we, we told a couple stories last week about losing things and buying these key trackers and this GPS stuff to help us not to lose stuff. So we're going to continue in that same kind of thought pattern uh, that, that we, we started with our conversation last week. Uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about lost. And we're going to be looking here in, in Luke chapter 15 at how Jesus is Basically, he's, he's trying to get people to understand what the kingdom is like and what God's heart is. Because uh, sometimes we think we have an idea of, of who God is, and we, we come to church, and we have a lot of different misconceptions, uh, misconceptions that we've picked a lot of ideas up from various places. Uh, maybe it's bad theology in places that, that we've heard bad teaching. Uh, and so um, what we want to do is really see what is Jesus saying the kingdom is like? What is Jesus saying that God's heart is like? And so that's why we're going to Luke chapter 15. Before we go there, there was a, uh, a guy by the name of John and his fiancée, Daniela, uh, who had gotten engaged. They were from uh, Britain, and they went to New York because he was going to propose to her. And he, while they were there, he wound up proposing to her, giving her uh, a big old ring. Um, and so he put this ring on her finger, and a few hours later after uh, proposing to her and putting this ring on her finger and her saying yes. They went to Times Square, right? Because when you're in New York, you've got to go to Times Square, right? That's what you do. And so as they were standing there in Times Square, he said, hey, let me see your ring. And so he kind of grabs her hand and, and finagles with the ring. And the ring is, is kind of big, and so it comes off her finger, and it hits the ground, which they're standing on one of those grates that... Yes, yes, and, and so it hits the grate, it bounces, then it bounces again and goes right in the grate. And so it's about eight feet down in this, and you can imagine everything that gets washed from Times Square into these grates, uh, the, the uh, just, you know, right? And so that's what it's in. And uh, so they call the police. And uh, uh, the NYPD comes out, and they're trying to help find this ring. Uh, they just they can't. They can't find the ring anywhere in this, this muck. And um, these, these people are heartbroken. I mean, this woman is devastated, and this man is just crushed that he has just lost this ring that he has spent all this money on. How many of you know how you'd have felt, you know? And uh, so they, they wind up leaving without the ring. Um, another police officer comes on duty in the next shift. And he says, you know what? He heard about it. He says, let me, let me look for it one more time. Maybe, maybe something will turn up. And lo and behold, he finds the ring. He actually, he doesn't take him too long poking around in this mess, that he actually finds it, and he's able to pull it out. But now that they found the ring, they don't have a couple. The couple is lost because 
they weren't from New York. They, they had already uh, gone home, and so they had gotten back on a plane to fly back to, to England. And uh, so they had to track them down. They actually put it on Twitter, and they tried to get uh, people's help on social media to help them find these people. And they did. They found the people, uh, and they were able to get the ring back to them. Uh, but it's an amazing story of something that was once lost that has been found, right? And we've heard plenty of stories like that. How many of you guys have lost something uh, and you found it? How many of you lost something and you never found it? Right? <laughs> How many of you lost something and you didn't find what you were looking for, but you found something else? <laughs> right? It's like, hey, man, I've been looking for this. Uh, that, that's, there's a story of a young Bedouin child who was, uh, who was tending his sheep, and one of the sheep got away. And so he was trying to track this little, this little sheep down, uh, and he comes across this cave. And so what he does, this little Bedouin boy, he takes this, this rock and he throws it into the cave to see if there's anything in there, to see if it would stir up. Uh, and when he throws the rock into the cave, he actually hears something shatter. And upon more investigation, he finds these vessels, uh, these, these clay pots, and and what he basically discovered was what we now know is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, that he went looking for the lost sheep, and he found the lost Dead Sea Scrolls, which have been, uh, you know, very, very important to Bible translation and just knowing, hey, what we're translating, it's, 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 it's really good, it's really accurate. And so he found something other than what he was looking for, probably found something better than what he was looking for, right? Well, this morning I want us to look at a couple, we're going to look at uh, three stories over the next three weeks in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is telling these stories, he's telling these parables, and that's how Jesus taught. He, he would tell truths about God's kingdom by telling stories. Because he would go uh, and talk about what people knew to help them understand something that they didn't know. Right? Um, we know everyday life around us, but if I can say, you describe heaven to me. Well, you're going to give me your best scenario, but all you're doing is really guessing, right? And so uh, what Jesus is doing is he is trying to take something that people know, and he is trying to describe to them something that they may not know, trying to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And really more specifically, he's just trying to describe what God's heart is like. And so that's what I want us to go to this morning. And so let's go ahead and go to Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And it says, and now the tax collectors and sinners, and they just start right off with uh, the worst people that the Jews knew were tax collectors. Tax collectors were these, these people that were just hated because they were seen as traitors to the Jewish people. They were seen as traitors because to be a tax collector, you had to bid to get the right to collect taxes in a certain district. And so to collect taxes in that district, you would bid to the Roman government and the highest bidder. Basically, I'm going to give the Roman government a million dollars, and they're going to give me this district for me to be able to collect taxes. And what I'm going to do then, if I'm the tax collector, a lot of times that's what they would do, is pocket the money. And they would pocket way more than their fair share. So you could see why these guys were not liked. They were, they were hated. And so tax collectors come up over and over and over in the New Testament about just how they're, they're, they're not loved. Uh, Matthew, uh, that we know, um, Matthew is, was a tax collector, and um, so he was, 
you, you see this, this story is, is starting with something that everybody knows. And now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Uh, Jesus had an appeal to people. He had an appeal to people who uh, may not um, live like the religious people think they need to live. And, but, but Jesus had an attraction to them anyways. And so now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, or I'm going to call it the experts in the law, you know. Experts. You ever met an expert? You know, an expert is someone who knows everything about anything, and they're going to tell you why you're wrong about what you think that you know, right? That's what these experts, these experts in the law, these Pharisees and these scribes, probably a better term is experts in the law because they would have been the ones to know the ins and outs of Torah, and uh, they would let you know just how much that they knew and how much you didn't know. Well, uh, these Pharisees and these scribes, they were there. And this is what it says. It says, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus is talking to people. Jesus is talking here to a group of sinners. Actually, the whole group is sinners. The difference is this. Some of them know that they're sinners, and some of them don't know that they're sinners, right? Some of them realize, you know what, I am in need of a Savior. Some of them realize that, yes, I don't have it all together. Some of them think that they have it all together, and they don't need anybody to tell them to get it together. And that is the two groups of people that you have here. And, and they come to Jesus, and uh, you have these uh, Pharisees, these experts in the law. They're not there to listen to Jesus. They've actually already made their mind up. These people, these uh, Pharisees and experts in the law, they've already made their mind up about Jesus. They're not there to gain wisdom. They are there to try to gain the upper hand. They are trying to there to, to get some dirt on Jesus. You ever had people that, maybe friends like that, friend, frenemies, you know, they're just there to try to figure out when they can get one up on you. You know, maybe that's coworkers that, that you work with, people like that that are surrounding you. They're just always waiting in the wings, just ready to correct you, ready to pounce and ready to, to let you know where you went wrong and what you did wrong. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. They weren't there to gain wisdom from Jesus. They were trying to gain the upper hand. And so because of this, they began to grumble and complain. And Jesus, he knows this. He's like, hey, um, he, I'm going to tell you a story. Now, this other group that he's telling the story to, that's the people that uh, need to hear it. It's the tax collectors and the sinners. And you have to understand this. Just because people come to Jesus and Jesus gives them this welcome, just because Jesus welcomes you in doesn't mean he welcomes your sin. Just because Jesus welcomes you in doesn't mean he's welcoming your sin. And, and an invitation doesn't mean affirmation. 
When Jesus gives an invitation, it doesn't mean that he's trying to affirm your sin. It doesn't mean that he's trying to be like grandma. You know, grandma, she just loves you, and she's going to pat you on the butt and say, baby, I love you, and she's just going to go on, and she's going to tolerate it. That's, Jesus is not grandma, right? He's better than grandma, if that, can, if that can be the case. And I know I'm probably offending some of you guys right now. I, I love my grandma, all right? But Jesus is better than that because he's not going to let us live in this. He's not going to let us live in this stuff that separates us, that's killing us, that's, that's rotting us from the inside out. Jesus wants to deal with our sin. And so because Jesus gives us an invitation, that doesn't mean that he's affirming the things that we've been doing. And it doesn't mean that he's affirming the lifestyle that maybe we've lived. Jesus wants to welcome us in so that he can change us. And so there is this invitation that he gives. He, he calls them to him, and he says, let me tell you a story. And he starts out, and he, he starts out with, uh, what man of you? Basically, the way that he's starting here is a common sense phrase. He says, listen, all of you uh, know what this is like. You, I want to start painting you a picture of something that you know. And, and, and if I had to try to help you translate yourself right now into a into a, a, a different place and in a different job. Just close your eyes real quick. I want you to do a thought experience. Just close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now, some of y'all are not obedient. <laughs> I'm not closing my eyes. Close your eyes. And I just want you to imagine yourself right now on the back of a trash truck. All right? Did you get that picture? Yes. So a trash truck? Imagine yourself on the back of a trash truck. Or imagine yourself right now being... Uh, knee-deep in a sewer. These are jobs that somebody has to do, right? But maybe they don't want to do. Maybe these are jobs that, that somebody has to do, but we don't necessarily want to do it. See, being a shepherd wasn't the, the easiest job, and it wasn't the cleanest of jobs. Uh, it was kind of a dirty job. Mike Rowe would have been really proud of this, this, these shepherds here. It was dirty jobs with Mike Rowe, right? These guys, they, they had a dirty job, and they had to go out, and they had to tend the sheep. A lot of times, they were hireling. Uh, the sheep actually didn't just belong a lot of times to one person. It belonged to a community of people. And so there would be times where you would have differing uh, groups of sheep and shepherds, and sometimes uh, they would converge. There was one lady I was reading her book, and she talked about watching this, where three groups of shepherds converged on one road, and these shepherds were talking to each other. And all these sheep began to intermingle, and she began to think, how are they going to get these sheep back out. You know, all these sheep are so mixed up and intermingled and said that as they began, the shepherds began to uh, depart from each other, they began to call out and the sheep knew the shepherd's voice and they actually began to follow the right way. She said it was amazing to see how they, they dispersed and that the sheep followed the right shepherd. And so uh, sheep will know the shepherd's voice. But you got to understand this, sheep are really dumb, Right? And it's interesting that we get related to sheep a lot of times in these stories. When Jesus tells a story, uh, or when anybody tells a story, when you're watching a movie, aren't you trying to figure out who you are in the movie? Right? I mean, and do you not just put yourself in the role of the hero? Yeah, I would be the hero, right? I am the depiction of Rocky, right? In Rocky, I'm the guy who's rising up from the ashes, right? Uh, we watched the movie the other night, me and Raina, and I'm sitting there, and this guy's really grumpy, you know? And I'm thinking, I see myself in this guy. I see, I'm starting to resonate with him. But we're always trying to figure out who we are in the story, and Jesus is telling the story, 
And he's telling the story about this man who loses his sheep. He's got 99 sheep. I don't know. how many. Do we have sheep herders in here? Any sheep herders? I didn't think so, right? Um, no sheep herders. So I don't know about sheep. You don't know, really know about sheep. Uh, so is 100 sheep a lot of sheep? I don't know. Uh, from what I read, you can have anywhere between 25 to 200 sheep. That was about, that would be normal. So you could have, that. so 100 would have been about midways. It's about average. Uh, and so to lose one wouldn't be devastating because you would have 99 more, right? It would, it would be, you would have enough to say, hey, listen, I, I lost one. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a risk. If you had $100, right? Some of you, somebody in here may have $100, and you lose a dollar. You're not trying to lose a dollar. You don't want to lose a dollar. But probably you're not going to stay up all night long thinking about that dollar that you lost, right? At least some of us wouldn't. Some of you guys are, are just neurotic like that. You're thinking, I got to, you, you know, if you're a banker maybe, you might. Where's that dollar at? Where's that 50 cent go, right? And so, um, you know, you're probably not thinking too much about that dollar because it's not seemed like a big loss to you but see Jesus tells this story in such a way where something that may not seem like a big loss actually God is saying I recognize the loss here and so he tells this story and he's he's trying to help people understand and people did understand this they understood that sheep are prone to wander off they get lost and they don't generally find their way home they have to be pursued. Someone has to go after them. In between services, me and, uh, me and Reggie were, were down here talking. He showed me a video. Some of you guys might have seen this video, and I wish I'd have had this video this morning. Uh, I saw this video where there's this trench, and basically there's a sheep that has gotten lodged down in this trench. And the guy takes it by the leg and pulls this sheep out, and the sheep just starts bouncing around. It takes about two bounces and jumps right back in the ditch, right? And it's like, that is a beautiful depiction of Christians. Sometimes we get pulled out of the ditch and we jump right back in it. And, and because sheep are dumb and sometimes we're dumb and we do things that are dumb and we do things over and over that are dumb. And what Jesus is trying to say is, is this, that sheep that wander off have to be pursued. And this is what he's saying. He's, he's basically telling them, God's saying, I will come after you. I will come after you. See, Ezekiel chapter 34, and you can go read in the book of Ezekiel, um, verses 1 through 10, the prophet is describing, um, basically the prophet is describing a group of religious leaders that he is calling shepherds that are bad shepherds. And, and the Old Testament will give you a depiction of a good shepherd, the 23rd Psalm, Right? But this is a bad shepherd. He gives you a depiction of bad shepherds. And, and the, the prophet Ezekiel begins to call out and says, listen, you, you neglect the sheep. And, and basically God's word is to these shepherds, these religious leaders, you're not doing what you're supposed to. Basically, you're consuming and you're gorging yourself and people are going neglected and people are being abused. And basically you're abusing the religious system and you're abusing people in this religious system and we get down to verse 10 and this I just want to read this one verse here and this is what God says um, thus says the Lord God behold I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. That's basically what they were doing. They said, just feed me. You, you are here. You exist for me. 
And God is tired of this abuse. And what, this is what he says. He says, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. God is saying this because this is sometimes what we get. Sometimes we think that God is just mean and God can be, you know, kind of grumpy. We think that the Old Testament God is more grumpy than the New Testament God. We get a depiction of Jesus in the New Testament. We're like, we like Jesus. He's a cool dude. The Old Testament God, he's scary. You know, he's throwing lightning bolts and he's setting the tops of mountains on fire and he speaks with thunder and all this stuff. And it's just like, you know, that Old Testament God, he's scary. I don't know that I like that Old Testament God. Jesus is saying that the same God in the New Testament, the same God he's telling the story about is the same God in the Old Testament. That he is the same one, that he's not the grumpy God, that he's not the angry God. You know, uh, Jonathan Edwards, there's a famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I never did like that. I don't think that's a good depiction of who God is. I think God has shown us time and time and time and time again that if you read Scripture, he shows us that I am the God who's compassionate and merciful. I, I, am, I am faithful from generation to generation to generation. And he is a God of justice, but he leads with mercy. When he introduces himself in the book of Exodus, he leads with mercy. He says, this is who I am. And so Jesus begins to tell this story to try to help these people understand God is not the grumpy God. God is not here just trying to throw a lightning bolt on you to make you a greasy spot on the ground. That God loves you. And that God is the God who, just like he did with the children of Israel when they were in Egypt, he went out to deliver them and rescue them. And this is the kind of God that Jesus is depicting in the story. He's saying, listen, God loves you so much that if you get lost, he'll come find you. That when you wander off and wander, wander away, he loves you this much that he's going to come after you. He will pursue you. That he's going to come after you. He's not going to say, you know what, you're not worth the risk. There's some people that might look at you and say, you're not worth the risk. God's not that person. God looks at us and he says, you are worth the risk. This is how Jesus is described in, in, uh, in Scripture where he's described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That at the very beginning, at the outset of creation, God's thinking, if I create these people and I create them with free will, there is a chance that they won't choose me. And if they wander off and don't choose me, I'm going to have to go after them. And if I go after them, it's going to cost me. You know what he did? He did it anyways. He said, you're worth the risk. You're worth the risk to walk out, and it's going to cost me something, but you're worth the cost. And it cost Jesus his life, but he says, you're worth the cost. And I love the story that Jesus is telling here because he says the shepherd is going out. He's trying to find this, this sheep, and when he finds him, what does he do? See, God closes the gap between us. That's what he's trying to do. He's always trying to close the gap between, between us. He's trying to close the gap between you and him always. And sometimes we're trying to put distance between ourselves and God. You know, sometimes we do it inadvertently and sometimes we do it on purpose. We're trying to put distance between us and God because we know that God is calling us and he wants to close that gap between us. And this is in the story, the shepherd closes the gap between him and the sheep. But he, not just, he doesn't just close the gap between him and the sheep. He actually takes that sheep and becomes even more caring with it. He picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders. And I love that picture. And I think back to Good Friday. 
I think back, we had that cross that was bolted here to the front of the stage. And I think about the cross that Jesus bore. Where did he bear it? He bore it on his shoulders. He took that cross. And what did that cross represent? It represented every pain, every sin, every disgusting thing that we've ever done or ever thought about doing. Jesus took that. He took our wondering and he took our loss. And he put that on his own shoulders. And he bore that for us. And this picture that Jesus is giving here is a picture. They don't get this yet. They don't see this yet. See, we have the Paul Harvey version. We get the rest of the story now. We've seen the rest of the story on the other side of the cross where Jesus is raised. But he took that cross and he put it on his shoulders. This shepherd puts that sheep on his shoulders. And he bears up the weight of the sheep. He bears up the wounds of the sheep. He bears up the sins and the wanderings of the sheep. And he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it home. And I love what Jesus says. What does, he, what does a shepherd do after he does this? Puts the sheep on his shoulders. What does it say he does? Anybody know? He rejoices. He rejoices. And once again, that's kind of a strike at that God's angry and God's mean. The gods, you know, even the Greek people thought the gods were angry. They had a bunch of gods. And all their gods were angry and mean and capricious, you know. And so they were just ready to do something to, to, to make them a, a, a stomp a mud puddle on them, right? And, and that's not who our God is. And that's what Jesus is saying. So that's not who our God is. Our God is the God who rejoices when someone comes home. Our God is the God who rejoices when someone has wandered off and we bring that, that person back. Our God is the God who rejoices. See, there was an old rabbi expression that they would have known. The rabbis would have said something like this. This was something that, uh, that was out during that time. said, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That's a, that was a saying at that time. That God gets joy when those who provoke him perish. That's what some would have been teaching. You see what Jesus does? He takes that same thing and he flips it around. And he, he basically tells the story like this. That just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven is rejoicing. And this is what I call a party theology. A party theology. Anybody ever heard party theology? Sometimes we don't think those two words go together. We think, well, there's a party and there's theology. They don't match up. But actually, this is what Jesus is giving us. He is giving us a party theology. He is giving us a celebratory theology where he's saying God celebrates those who come home. God is celebrating that what was, once was lost has been found. God celebrates that. And we should celebrate that too. Sometimes we major on stuff that doesn't make a difference in this world, right? You ever had an had a argument or fight over something and you, you just kind of step back and look at it and like, what are we fighting about? You ever done that? Yeah, I have. I have where I've stepped back and I thought, why are we even arguing? I don't even know what we're arguing about anymore. And, and we do that. We make things that are super small, we make them really big. And then those things that are super big, we make them really small. Because when people celebrate baptism, there may be only a handful of people that will show up. Hey, I want you to come to my baptism. Oh, that sounds great, you know. You may get half the people that you invite. No, I want to celebrate baptism. That's why we film it the way we do, because we want you to celebrate it on that day, and we want you to continue to celebrate it. And we want people to celebrate that with you. 
This is the party that God calls us to. He invites us into this party theology. I'm going to ask somebody to come play. There's a guy by the name of Robert Robinson, and he wrote an old hymn. Uh, and you might know this hymn. The hymn's called Come Thou Fount. Anybody know that, that hymn, Come Thou Fount? I love this hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns. And I didn't know this story, but he wrote this, this hymn at 22 years of age. After this, he went into uh, the ministry. He became pastor of a church. He um, was pastoring this church, and um, people were just coming by the hundreds just to his church, and things were going really well. And that for a time, things went, went great. But something happened in his life, and he began to wander away. He began to not be as adamant about his faith. And so he, he wound up walking away at one point. And he is standing on a street corner one day, and he sees this, this horse and carriage coming. And it's basically a cab, and he kind of waves his hand trying to get the cab to come. And he's going to stop and take this cab to where he needs to go. And he realizes that there's already a lady in this cab, but the lady stops the, uh, the horseman anyways. And, and, she's, and he said, he looked at her and he said, you look like you're dressed for church. Are you going to church? And she said, yes. And she said, sir, you can ride with me. And he's very reluctant to do that. But he climbed up in that carriage with this woman. And during the ride, this woman began to kind of hum this tune to this song. And she began to recount the words of this song. And Robert just began to break down in tears. And she said, sir, why are you crying? Why, what's going on? And he says, ma'am, he says, I wrote that song. He says, and I, I am now living those words where it says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He says, that's where I'm at right now. I've wandered away. And she looked at him and she said, but sir, you also wrote the next line. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. And it reminded him that he could come home. That God looks for those who have walked off the path. God looks for the sheep who have wandered away. No matter how dumb they are and how dumb you may seem that you are, God loves you so much. And I want you to stand with me. I want you to stand with me. And so this morning, wherever you're at right now, maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you're like the sheep that has, you were here and not close to God. You've walked, you've walked away. He says, I'm coming for you. And sometimes that can seem, you know, it depends on what voice you hear that in. If you hear somebody say, I'm coming for you, you know, that can be kind of scary, right? That's not how he says it. He says, I'm coming for you to rescue you, to bring you back. Not only to bring you back, but to celebrate your return home. I'm coming to bring you back. This is who God is. He is the God of the comeback.
Maybe you've had a setback. Maybe you've had Satan just kind of just do a number on you, and you've walked away, and you've been wandering, and you've just been trying to figure out where I'm at. See, Jesus wants to take your setbacks and make them comebacks. He wants to bring you back, bring you back to the heart of the Father. And this is the heart of the Father, that those who are away are now home. And we got to celebrate that. We've got to throw a party. You've been listening to New Life Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. For more information regarding New Life, please visit our website at newliferh.com.